Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, we look at modern monetary theory, MMT, which tells us that we shouldn't worry about government debt, that governments can create money to spend on projects that are going to create full employment. Well, even if that is the case, what happens when the money you need isn't in your currency? You can't create foreign currency, can you? So how does modern monetary theory work in practice? For small countries that need foreign currencies to buy the imports they need to grow their economy. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Now, Mario Draghi, as he steps aside from the ECB, has suggested that the central bank in Europe should look at new ideas. And they've tried everything else. New ideas like modern monetary theory. He used those words. He talked about it when he was speaking to a European parliamentary committee uh, in uh, late September. Not a uh, not a job for a bank, he said, of course, but uh, something for the governments to look at, perhaps because he doesn't know what else to do. But Japan doesn't know what else to do either, which is why they have been allegedly looking at MMT too. And look, with $22 trillion in government debt, you could argue the US has been practicing it too and doing better than most economies. So, Steve... Is it an idea whose time has come, do you think? Well, this, this is the intriguing thing. The, the, the fundamental uh, basis of MMT is simply a factual description of the government's role in money creation. And I extend that by having my own factual description of the, the role of the private banking sector in money creation. Of course, in uh, where, where I differ with modern monetary theory, and it's just a case of I think they, they haven't thought it through themselves properly, not that there's a conflict, uh, is that they underrate the importance of private bank money creation and say that the, the whole uh, endogenous money literature, uh, to quote Randy Ray on this, has had a, trivi- a trivial impact. I believe that's completely wrong. Mm. But when you, when you bring in the case that it, that it has non-trivial impact in terms of the macroeconomics, it strengthens the MMT case overall. Yeah, because as we discussed yeah. in the recent episode, yeah. I mean, 97% of money created is being created by commercial banks. Yeah, yeah, that, and that's the part that people are positive money want to end, uh, and so it should all be 100% created by the government. But in both cases, what you're getting is an acceptance that the government doesn't have to uh, it, it doesn't have to tax in order to spend. Yeah. Uh, whereas you, you and I have to work in order to get income. Uh, the, the government, uh, you know, we, we have to earn before we can spend. Yeah. Uh, what it's saying is the government can spend before it earns because it is the currency issuer. And then once you take that into account, there's all sorts of complicated uh, mechanics in that. And often those mechanics are imposed by uh, by laws, by legislatures that actually want to restrict what governments can do and see that as a good thing that they put those restrictions on. But uh, what, what MMT uh, fundamentally starts from is say, well, let's look through the veil of those Restrict first, accept the overall legal reality that a a, a country's country's government is a sensible country's government, which of course leaves out about twenty three countries in Europe. Uh, but a sensible country's government um, uh, creates its own currency, 
and thereby creating its own currency, the only way that currency can actually be, be spent. If you go back to look, look at the foundation of the United States, the only way that currency could be taxed back in by the uh, by the government was it was created by the government in the first place. Yeah, yeah. and, and that, that's that's the the I think probably the best point is is to go back to an ab initio case like that and say, you know, when did the greenback originate? Uh, did America did the did the uh, Washington government start taxing people in greenbacks before they created the greenback? I'm sorry, there's a slight technical problem in doing that. The, um, <laughs> Right. So governments create the money. I, I like that argument. I mean, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you look at yeah, uh, yeah. which came uh, first, the chicken or the egg, well, the greenback definitely came uh, before yeah, tax. Good, which meant the spending came before the taxation. Right. And and, and the and the role of government then is to, I mean, they can, in theory, then create as much money as they want, subject to inflation. If they, could, if they do it too much, then obviously uh, you're going to have runaway inflation. But the target is to reduce unemployment. So if there's unemployment, there's not enough investment in the economy, in other words. So the public sector should spend but the argument is of course as well does that public spending crowd out spending that would otherwise have happened by the private sector um you know is there, is, is there a danger that if if you if you pursue this you're going to stop innovation for example yeah well i mean this that's 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 the uh that's that's i'm actually trying to backtrack a bit here uh to the actual issue of uh of government spending itself mm. and what that means because if if you say uh if, if you start from the perspective it says this government has to tax before it can spend then you're putting the government under the same effective constraints as you put out a household or a business under you must earn money before you can spend it uh and that means that you, your budget constraint is a major major issue for you and then what who's the it is micawber from um uh, is it, is it uh, from uh, from Charles Dickens the uh, expression? What is it? Uh, income uh, twenty pounds, expenditure nineteen pounds, nineteen and six uh, is uh, is heaven, and uh, income twenty pounds, expenditure twenty pounds and six pence is hell. Something of that sort of statement. Yeah, uh, you're not going to okay, get that, it from me. <laughs> okay, sorry. Long time since I've read Dickens. Yeah, uh, but that but that is the the, the the situation of any private institution. But when the, for the government's point of view, once you say that the government has to spend before it can tax the money back in, then it no longer faces that constraint. It is not constrained by its budget in the same yeah. sense that but a household or a firm is. But yeah. understanding and, all of that, yeah. so if yeah. but I mean the practicality is how it works is if the government spends, then that gets counted as, I mean, perhaps we're wrongly terming it, but government debt, because we because basically the government issues bonds to cover their spending. And that's where, yeah, you get this, yeah. that's where you get this crowded ad issue. So in theory, they could keep on doing that. They could keep on issuing bonds. And in fact, you know, we're even getting a conservative government in the UK talking about that now, saying interest rates are so low, let's start spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, because why not, you know, make the most out of the opportunity. But the, you know, conservative bar- government would normally be arguing uh, when they weren't politicking like they are now, that uh, the, the danger of doing that is that it crowds out private sector spending because who is going to buy, for example, uh, equities or bonds in a private company when you can buy government debt and that's oh. always going to be repaid? Isn't isn't there a danger that you you know by following this argument you you get you know almost towards a, a communist situation where the state will control everything? Well, the, my God, mate, you've summarised the entire Republican Party debate and Democrat, for that matter, unfortunately, <laughs> in two sentences. So, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, but, but, but this is partly the problem. Is, is I mean, it's a, I mean, a, a classic discussion between uh, somebody who is a proponent of MMT as a way of analysing 
the, the economy rather than saying what the policy should be as a result of that. And somebody who's against it uh, goes, uh, oh, government spend more than it uh, gets back in taxation, but Zimbabwe. Yeah, so always bought up. Yeah. And all of a sudden, okay, okay, let's get there in a few steps, okay? Let's just gradually, you know, let's not leap straight to Zimbabwe straight away. Let's just get there and say, why did Zimbabwe have compare? Whereas if you look at America, and this is why I like to stick with American data as much as I can, if you look at the uh, – I, I, just, just a quick technical question here – do you regard 120 years as a long time? Well, it depends what you're talking about, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, it would be a short period to the next ice age. I'd be worried about yeah, that. But, yeah, but, not, not in the scheme of human evolution, but in the mm. scheme of... Okay, yeah. uh, so 120 years, I think we take as being a definition of the long term. And because economists make a lot of the song and dance about saying, well, this applies in the short term, but in the long term, this has to apply. Well, the th that's exactly what they do about government spending. If you read, uh, and I unfortunately have read, uh, the papers of people like Robert Barrow, which gave us this whole idea of uh, what he called Ricardian equivalence and all, all the travesties that, have, that led to completely ignoring the financial crisis, yada, yada, yada. Uh, they start with saying the government must, over the long term, must make sure that it's the net present value of its expenditure uh, of the gap between government spending and government taxation is zero. That is a built-in assumption to the paper that gave us the idea of uh, what they call Ricardian equivalence, saying mm. that the, the any government spending necessarily crowds out private sector spending. Uh, and as we, we all know the government must have a net zero balance over time. That That's the starting point of that thinking. Now, when you... Um, when, when you look at the American data, then that should be turning up in the American data. Over the long term, it should be zero. The actual value in terms of the, the difference between uh, its income and its expenditure between taxes and spending is minus 2.4% of GDP. In other words, for the last 120 years, America has been spending roughly 2.4% more than it's been getting back in taxation. Now, if you take out the big events like the Second World War and the First World War, it falls, of course, mm. to 2.2%. Wow. Okay. Okay. When you take out, take out the warp, it's still of the order of 2% of GDP per annum on average over 120 years. Now, call me crazy, but I'd like to base my economic analysis on the data. But that would mean that, that would mean then a widening, um, you know, the terms that are used today, that would mean a widening. Um, budget deficit, a widening government government deficit. You know, the cons pretty much that's the average. That's the average scale of the budget deficit, 2.4% of GDP. All right, okay. Okay, so uh, in other words, it's been doing that for 120 years. Now, Zimbabwe, what's been the impact on the rate of inflation? <laughs> well, at the moment, thousands of percent. It's scraping off the, it's barely scraping above the zero point. And of course, you go back, you can find, of course, in the year 1980s, and this, this is the period that I think scarred conventional economic theory and, for that matter, progressive theory very badly. The period of high inflation leading up to the Volcker recession, uh, but that's when the, you know, the most economists who are, of my generation, think, thankfully, starting to retire, um, not die as Max Planck recommends, but still retire. Um, they were scarred by that experience, and of course, their whole thing has been fighting the war against inflation. Well, they've won, and it's now about bringing running below two percent, and they're struggling to push it up to two percent. But if if the argument that running a budget deficit will give you Zimbabwe applied, and you apply it to America. 
in this particular Zimbabwe has inflation of virtually zero mm. after 120 years of consistent budget deficits. With but only won't a, you, won't uh, you so get to a point, though, if you do keep on creating money willy-nilly, that you will devalue the currency and that will create an in inflation and there will well, be the, a the, point at which the extra creation has a negligible impact on uh, on the on the money supply yeah, because yeah. And, and, and that and that then is what MMT says the constraint of uh, the government faces is not that it has to tax before it can spend and again that's where the the foundational argument of going back to the the first greenback uh, makes that point fairly easily uh, it's that it is what's the practical impact of its spending now if you Im imagine uh, if you could take yourself back to the Second World War, the beginning of the Second World War, and here, here Britain's a better example because, of course, it was in, you know it, it didn't have a, 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 an option of delaying its involvement there. Um, when Britain began the, the uh, Second World War, the budget deficit in 1940 was 40% of GDP. Now, right. okay, we, if you ask people what do they remember from the beginning of the Second World War, it's not inflation, it's rationing. So that 40%, uh, then they, they, they couldn't buy everything that you could be able to buy with your incomes. Uh, the money was being rationed so that everything went to the war effort instead and individuals had to save the money that they, they fundamentally couldn't spend because you couldn't buy, you know, you couldn't buy coffee, you couldn't buy tobacco with, uh, you couldn't buy more than one pack of tobacco, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the, the huge budget deficit then, um, did not cause the wall to fall in. And the reason that they went to 40% was 39% may have, uh, may save you a bit of money, but it also meant you have to learn German shortly. So, <laughs> Which is, which, yeah. Oh, ex yeah. Ex existential threats throw this particular argument against government spending out the window. But the what was realised by Americans in particular, and, and Barnsley Rummel, who at the time, despite, well, maybe because of the weird name, was head of the US Federal Reserve, uh, and a range of other economists as well realised that during the Second World War, the government's capacity to create money enabled it to marshal the resources of the economy, first of all, to bring about complete full employment, so much so that mm. they had to recruit women into the workforce to replace the men who were fighting on the front lines. Um, and then that, that's the road where the whole Rosie the Riveter thing came from, which, of course, was turned into suppression of women in the 1950s, the... the uh, um, the 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 the, pig, the pickwick wives, whatever they called it, um, that that huge huge boost to point them out that the control the, the capacity of the government to create money meant it could marshal as many of the resources of the economy as it wished to marshal. But the point of the MMT comes back to well, what are going to be the consequences of that? And yes, if you did uh, massively boost government spending all the time, say for, for example, to the scale of twenty percent of GDP as the as the government deficit. Yeah. And you happen to be, for example, running a trade deficit also of twenty percent of GDP. And here I'm thinking specifically of Turkey. Uh, then what will happen? Yes, the, the the government money creation goes massively into buying imported goods. Uh, you start having to borrow in a currency who's not your own because people won't accept the Turkish lira. Uh, except that a huge you have to convert the Turkish lira into American dollars to buy goods at all. Uh, people no longer have confidence that you can generate because you're running a huge. 
um, current account deficit, they don't have confidence that you can actually service that over time. You have a currency crisis for the lira, it falls in value and bang, the economy falls over as well. Yeah. That is a danger. Okay? But you don't, supposedly you don't get into, and that I, mean, I want to get onto that whole influence mm-hmm. of, you know, the externalities because it work, you know, it's easy to look at MMT and convincingly argue the case, isn't it, if you're in a completely closed economy. And look, if you've got resources which are underutilized, which of course is the, what the case is, if people are out of work, then mm. you can't have inflation through too much demand, can you? Because there's always going to demand uh, that's going to be there if the resources were utilized, if everyone had a yeah. job. I mean, that's the, that's the, the base theory behind it all, isn't it? If you've got yeah. people who are out of work, then you're not going to get inflation until you've got full employment, basically. Yeah, and that's why they say the real concern should be full employment and inflation. It's the, it's the practical mm. is, again, back to the Barnsley-Rummel point and, and others from that time after the Second World War experience. The constraint on the government is the effect of what it does, not whether it can raise the money in the first instance. So the, they say you should be looking at what is happening to inflation, uh, what is the level of employment. Those are important issues. Yeah, and, and what about uh, interest rates as well? Because there's, there's going to be a tipping point, presumably. If, if I issue bonds and pay 5% interest and the central bank buys them, but inflation is up around 10%, then that the bond is worth less than, than cash. So that's eating up central bank reserves. So there's a risk that they're going to be uh, pushing up interest rates, isn't there, which is going to uh, potentially reduce private sector investment. Well, this, this is the, again, there's a whole lot of technical uh, statistical stuff one has to do here. And I'll give two, uh, I'll start with that one first of all. One of my old, uh, very good friends, unfortunately deceased in recent years, Colm Kearney, uh, was a, an Irish economist working in Australia who specialised in looking at what he called the crowding out hypothesis. And this is the argument that government spending crowds out private sector yeah, spending. Now, you get, get that. Yeah. You get that in a very refined version in the so called Ricardian equivalence bullshit pardon me using a technical term here, bullshit, that uh, – did I say bullshit? Yeah, no, you were, you were more specific than that, Ricardian bullshit. I think Ricardian that's – Ricardian bullshit. Yeah, I'm happy, I'm happy for those two words to get together. Okay, okay, Ricardian bullshit put out by Robert Barrow uh, and literally said that every single cent of government spending is offset by an equal reduction in private sector spending. And this is on the argument that uh, – mm. and, and you read this stuff and I think – you know I spend a lot of time in Amsterdam. Yeah. I haven't found anything this mind-bending here yet. <laughs> I mean, you're not smoking enough. I mean, but actually, the counter-argument to that is very clear, though, isn't it? Because that would be like saying, well, if the government invests in infrastructure, that's going to stop private sector spending, where the whole reason for that investment in, in infrastructure was to facilitate enable, private sector enable, spending. And this is what Calm can. When Calm did the statistical analysis, uh, both in America, the UK, and Australia, he found what instead, empirically, there was crowding in. In other words, when the government spent money, for example, on building a piece of infrastructure like a highway between, uh, you know, let's say Los Angeles and San Francisco, uh, then, wow, my, my God, how amazing. Taco Bell and McDonald's and and, and Shell. Set up every five miles along that. Yeah, so, mm. so the government investment actually sp- spiked a level of private investment. And again, because the, the, this is the thing, the, 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 there are positive feedbacks between these things, not all the time negative feedbacks. But if you have positive feedbacks, they can go into overload. And this is what's, uh, I actually prefer to call positive and negative feedbacks amplifying and, and, and dampening forces. But if you put government spending in, it will often amplify private sector spending. Now, a combination of two amplifying events can go into overload. This is what happens when you go to a concert and somebody puts the microphone too close to one of the speakers. The amplifying f- feedback between the speakers and the microphone goes whoop and you, everybody's ear explodes and the system breaks down and you start all over again. So it's the potential for those amplifying feedbacks 
that are the danger. And uh, if you simply respond to that by amplifying yet more, and you're a country like Zimbabwe, then that's when you do end up in that loop. You know, you. Yeah. you, you well, well, so and the smaller the country, the more di- the more likely you're going to hit the, the sort of the tipping point where you've you have put too much money into the the economy. I mean that that is I mean that is given as the reason, isn't it, for hyperinflation in Zimbabwe? Partially, because they printed also, too much money and they got into this downward spiral. It, it wasn't just printing money; it was also you know uh, wiping out white farmers and yeah, uh, didn't help. But you know, what, what it looked like it was supposed to be you know progressive movement, but what it meant was people who, who expertise was lost. Um, and, and when and the, and the productive capacity collapsed, and of course you also had you know, you know Mugabe handing out resources to his to his co- cronies and so on and so forth. Um, that's that, and of course with the Weimar Republic, it was the complete devastation of Germany after the First World War and the reparation term that France forced upon them, which was designed to destroy Germany permanently. That had a little bit to do with the fact that hyperinflation resulted. So. That, that's that's the basic argument of MT against the it will always cause inflation and I think that's why I use the American case as well to say well 120 years of moderate government deficits uh, uh, sustained over time have not caused uh, private sector crowding out have not caused runaway inflation mm. uh, and and that's why they say it's got a functional argument and of course what we're seeing now people like Draghi is that they have ignored all this stuff. The people like Draghi were raised on the on the neoclassical Kool Aid that, uh, that was put into a refined form by Robert Barron and this idea of Ricardian equivalence that any increase in government spending is perfectly upset by a fall in private. Um, but the reality is that uh, when they apply those theories in the real world, and of course, living in the European Union, they're forced into a, a fiscal uh, compact to keep deficits below 3% of GDP and government debt below 60%. Uh, those constraints mean the government spending hasn't been at the scale that the Americans have done over the last 120 years. Mm. And wow, how strange, Europe's in a recession. And, and, and so everybody out. is now saying, yes, the only way out of this, whether you call it MMT or not, oh, is, is yeah. saying that the answer is, is not a monetary solution, it's a fiscal solution. In other words, yeah. governments have got to start spending. And that seems to, and you know, Boris Johnson is now saying, yes, in Britain, we need to start spending now. And he's promising all of this investment after all of these years of austerity. And his excuse is interest rates are low. We can afford to do it. But it is government yeah. spending. Basically, it's MMT. Uh, it's just yeah. a yeah. question of when you pay, whether you pay it back or not is the uh, open question mark. Well, they, they, and they have been question mark again as answered by the American data and indeed for the British yeah. data. If you go back far enough in Britain's history, uh, there was a time when government debt was over 250% of GDP. This, of course, was Britain was an impoverished country known, known as the British Empire. I was actually at the peak of their victories over over uh, Napoleon and the and the, you know, the growth of the extent of the, the empire in which the sun never sets, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, that was when the debt levels were that high. And and equally, America's debts were enormous after the second after the Second World War for the obvious reason of financing the Second World War. And over the period from the 1940s to the 1970s, that level of debt fell, even though America during that time hardly ever ran a surplus. It was the government, the economy was growing faster. Uh, than the than the, the than the extension of the interest on government debt, so it's feasible to pay this amount down, uh, even though you sustain a deficit all if the way. If you through. are a big country, the the question is what happens in smaller countries. So I've got a, a you know I'm I'm a small African country, uh, and uh, I've got a very in, instable currency. So uh, how does MMT theory work in that scenario? Because I want to increase spending, but my inflation rate's already high. 
unemployment is already high, so I issue bonds in US dollars rather than my own currency. My central bank can't buy them without, of course, paying for them in US dollars. So the interest has to be paid in US dollars. So I can't print money like I can for my own currency. Maybe I can print my own currency to uh, convert to pay in US dollars. But of course, I have to cover the exchange rate and the exchange rate will make it get worse and inflation could get out of control. So how does MMT theory, I mean, it's useless in this scenario, isn't it? No, uh, but this is actually where I point. There's a, a, to me, my way of thinking, there's a contradiction in MMT at this point. And this is one thing I'm not going to be able to resolve until I sit down and build a complete Minsky monetary model of a multi, multi economy, uh, multi currency economy world. But uh, MMT's argument in that particular case, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get corrected by complete MMT advocates here, is to say that you, their arguments only apply so long as you have effective so- sovereignty. That your currency and, and, the, and the sovereignty is defined in the fact that effectively your currency is accepted uh, in international, not for international trade itself, but it, uh, nobody's worried about your currency collapsing. Now, MMT throws in this additional argument as well as saying that the government, uh, rather than the government having to tax or spend, it says that the government spends and, and then taxes back to bring excess money creation uh, out of the economy. Uh, they argue, and this is something that comes from Warren Mosler, exports are a, a, a cost and imports are a benefit. Um, and and this is another argument, and I, I think this is completely wrong. I've had this arg- mm. argument a few times, that, but that that notion I think contradicts the fundamental argument about MMT that uh, you know you, you you government spend in order to spend before they tax. It's all about the government effectively creating the money that the rest of us use to spending. And if you're running a trade deficit, then and part of that trade deficit is you buy a Mercedes Benz, or you you being somebody somebody in Uganda buys a Mercedes Benz, then the bank account in Uganda in dollars goes down, the bank account in Mercedes Benz goes up as a result of that. But who's and going to sell me that that Mercedes Benz in Ugandan dollars? They're going to say, "Can you pay in US dollars?" And that's yeah, part yeah, of the problem. Got to, got to, got to, yeah. So the, the MMT's uh, argument in that case is to say that the Ugandan is not as sovereign because its currency is not as trusted as, as widely as the American, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. I just simply say there's been a monetary transfer, and to me, the most important balance to maintain is not the getting a government, uh, not not to try to have a, a government surplus, which is the conventional uh, austerity argument, uh, but to make sure your, 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 foreign, your foreign account is at least balanced. And this is one of Keynes's arguments during the formation of the Bretton Woods Agreement. He wanted to guarantee as best as possible that trade deficits were small and trade surpluses were penalised because he saw countries running trade surpluses as getting an advantage over those running trade deficits while simultaneously depressing global demand. His argument was that if you if you are running a surplus, you are effectively using international trade to generate a financial surplus, which you can reinvest in your own yeah. economy and therefore you grow faster. Well, what's wrong and with then, that? I mean, that seems like a logical explanation to me. But it's the opposite of what MMT says. MMT mm. comes out saying run, exports are a cost, imports are a benefit. I think that's bullshit. Pardon me. Um, yeah. I just I don't. I won't bother making an argument about it in public because MMT is being very successful. Right. On, on but if I but if I if I need if if my currency is not considered as trustworthy as the US dollar. Mm. And so people are not really prepared uh, to buy and sell bonds in my currency. So I can't. Uh, so I can't basically issue issue my own currency. The only way around that surely is uh, is import less and export more. You or know, sell so- local 
assets. Or, or um, yeah, which yeah, well, no, prefer- I, I, preferably I, not. But you want to do something to bring in that foreign currency. Well, that's that's what you have to do. And and, and MMT will ult- people ultimately do say that if you do too much of this, then then bad. But the starting proposition, they're still trying to squeeze in this argument that exports are a cost and imports are a benefit. And the country, the country uh, importing a goods hands over pieces of paper or you know monetary claims on itself in the future in return for physical goods now. I just think that's nonsense. This is I had this discussion with Warren Mosler um, some time ago. So the logic um, behind that is that uh, so. So I don't I, think it is logic. I think I think it's a saying that has become <laughs> ingrained in MMT, right. and I would like them to remove the saying. And I'm not going to. That's one point. I'm very happy to say I can. Well, they say that they they're saying as we import, we're depriving other nations of the resources that are used to create that product, and we're getting yeah. them. And if we're yeah, exporting yeah. them, we're giving up resources from our country. Yeah, yeah. But you're getting paid for them <laughs> as part exactly. of the process. You're though. investing and so on. So I think that's that's that to me is the furphy in MMT. Mm. Uh, but the fundamental argument, the, the monetary argument they make about the domestic economy, I think are quite valid. And what you've got with, let's go back to the, where, where why it's becoming raised now. You mentioned Draghi in the beginning. Uh, you have countries, super states like the European Union, that have lived by the neoclassical hymn book. Yeah, uh, saying that you know you, the government should not run a run a, run a deficit with the the target actually of the Maastricht Treaty and the Lisbon Treaty for governments on the average to run surpluses. Uh, and MMT's point is, if you are, if the government sector is running a surplus, then the non-government sector is running exactly the same deficit. And that's simply saying you divide the world in two halves, mm. and you have one half which which tries to uh, to spend less than it that gets back in. So government spending is less than government taxation. By definition, by fact, that means they're taking more out of private bank accounts and they're putting back into them. Uh, which means you, if you the government tries to get in a surplus, it necessarily forces the non-government sector, which is everything else apart from the government, into a deficit. And that is uh, the question: is well, can the private sector sustain an indefinite deficit? And the answer that any of us have been in that situation have tried it for long enough is no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But either borrow and, money or you go bankrupt. And yet, so many countries that have got these big foreign debt liabilities are being forced by the IMF and by the EU to follow these austerity-type policies, reducing government spending, borrow from the private markets, control the circulation of money. It really is the antithesis of MMT, isn't it, really? What's exactly, that? exactly. And that's the point that people make about Argentina. Rather than Argentina being a crit- criticism of MMT, it's showing that MMT is correct on that front because the policies that it, uh, it's been enforced into have encouraged the private sector to do everything that MMT says it will do if the government's taking money away all the time. And if you look at some of the reports recently, of course, people have got United States, American American dollar bank accounts in Argentina. They're going into uh, Argentinian banks and demanding uh, and, and exchanging their uh, Argentinian currency for American dollars. Uh, there's claims that there's something of the order of you know, 50 to $100 billion in the US notes stuffed under mattresses in Argentina. This is all in response to the fact that the government running a surplus it causes the private sector to run a deficit. Yeah. So it's saying that I mean, what you see with people like Draghi is Having seen that, thinking that was a good idea, uh, they now get to the end of their term, and what do they do? They come and say, "Gee, maybe it was a bad idea." And yeah, well, maybe he feels like he can say what perhaps seems a little bit more obvious to him now. But the, I mean, yeah. the other side is is uh, you know the the action of rating agencies like Moody's that are you know putting sovereign debt 
um, at uh, you know basically determining what the what the risk is, so that uh, you know if you've got a, a high level of sovereign debt, then they say, well, this is high risk. That puts yields on bonds ridiculously high, so more money is obviously then spent repaying mm. that debt. Uh, if you create more money to cover that, then you get more inflation. Uh, so, you know, no money used is actually going to get us anywhere. So you look at places like Mexico, for example, a triple B rating. It's got an interest rate over 7% paid on uh, 10-year government bonds. And, of course, you know, in many places it, it gets much higher than that. And and it's all down to ratings agencies that look at sovereign debt. So they're not – I mean, if they were to adopt uh, the uh, modern monetary theory philosophy – Maybe they'd be rating everybody slightly differently because I mean that is a big problem, isn't it? How it creates interest yeah. rates. Yeah, and then then and that's a huge issue. It's actually our rules about the monetary system that are causing the trouble, mm. rather than the monetary system itself per se. And and this is again like back back to Draghi, Draghi's conversion on the road away from Damascus. Um, this has happened to uh, Victor, Victor Constanza as well, who's another member of the ECB board. I had a, a discussion with him in a panel meeting in the UK about oh, four years ago now. And he was, you know, softly, but not emphatically defending the European Union position. As soon as he leaves the board, he starts talking about the need for four fiscal spending. So what they've had is they've, they've been trying this idea that the government should run a surplus. What it's generated is, is a state of depression. The, finan the financial, the monetary authorities have tried everything else to try to reflate the economy with the tools they have at their disposal that hasn't worked. And now they're coming out and saying, oh, maybe we should adopt these new ideas like MMT. Um, yeah, it's, it's showing that if you, if you defy reality, um, and, and that's what MMT on that particular basis is based upon. If you save, somebody else has to just save precisely as much. If you defy, if you don't take that understanding into case, you are going to end up stuffing up your economy, and that's what the European Union has succeeded in doing. And yet, haven't they got the biggest opportunity? If we if we say that one of the problems with MMT is that it doesn't work so well in small countries with weak currencies because you really can't generate too much of, of that currency because you've really got to start issuing your debt in stronger currencies like the, like the American dollar, then that would be a good reason to say, well, okay, let's take a whole load of weak currencies in an area. Let's take 27 nations in Europe, for example, and they didn't all join the euro, but if they did, uh, and th then you wouldn't have that issue of weaker currency. They'd all be part of a strong currency. That could well, be that, a, that could be a benefit of the euro, couldn't that, it? That's partly the philosophy behind forming the euro, but it was also married to the idea of austerity at the at the national level. Yeah. Uh, the only way it would have worked would be if you had a, a European um, government whose expenditure far exceeded the expenditure of the European states, which had become like the American states. And then your taxation was to this European authority rather than to the uh, mm. nations of Europe. And this is the problem, and isn't it? Was, so the idea, the idea of what the central bank does yeah. is has cut off. matching treasury. Yeah. So you, you all, which is, you know, it is what everyone doesn't want to have happen, which is the, the, the uh, European Union takes more control and loses the sovereignty of governments in terms of spending. But if there's a way that the central bank could be involved in creating that uh, that extra budget for you know, if they could be injecting money in uh, into the regions of Europe, then that could work, couldn't it? 
Well, that's the argument. The argument that Yanis uh, Varoufakis first put forward, and what he called a modest proposal, uh, way back in the early days of the European post-financial crisis crisis, uh, to say that we could actually, uh, you know, use purchases of the infrastructure bank bond, uh, you know, bonds issued by the infrastructure bank, fully backed by the European Central Bank, which could have enabled that sort of investment and, and re-stimulated the economy of Europe and got it out out of the out of the crisis that has remained in ever since. So it is feasible. But of course, it's far easier when people accept, as they do in America, that tax dollars are paid from you know Alabama to Washington and California to Washington, and then spending goes out from Washington to Alabama and Washington to uh, uh, California. And overall, effectively, California subsidising Alabama. But nobody knows because the records simply aren't kept. Uh, and, and frankly, nobody cares mm. because they've got used to the fact that it's the, the national government that is by far yeah. the largest spender than the states. It's a good you old US of A. I mean, yeah, as yeah. long as it's for the national good, but which you know is it obviously a very different philosophy in in Europe, where you know each to their own. They want to be part of uh, Europe, but they also want to get the best out of it. But what about yeah. when you look at countries like uh, uh, countries, continents like Africa, where you've got a lot of small countries? You know, many depended on the on the U.S. dollar. How could modern monetary theory work in situations like that? Well, it's again, it's the realism the government can can spend to finance its own expenditure in its own currency, so long as it has sovereignty in the sense that it's you know its currency continues to be accepted in its own current country. Now, of course, that's not the case in Argentina uh, anymore. Mm. It was that wasn't the case in Zimbabwe. People were you know it was the, it's the black market and U.S. dollars that that takes over. Um, it's it's really my again. That's why I come back and saying it's so important to have a certainly for developing countries to not face currency crises, to not have a, a current account deficit that can trigger a currency crisis, and that wipes everything out. And uh, so that my feeling would, be, and of course, with a developing country, you're going to be importing your capital goods. You're not going to be making them domestically, so you're going to have to buy those things until such time as you build up a local uh, industry. And that, and that again, comes down to a question of scale as well. Do you have a large enough economy to do it? Would right. it make sense in some cases? That's like that Nigeria. should be that should be the job of the World Bank, then, shouldn't it? How do we well, cap- no. how do we capitalise these countries so that they can develop uh, economies which can be self sufficient? And that was the again part of the Keynes's proposal for, with the Bancor and the IMF. If he wanted to exist, uh, that countries running a trade surplus would end up being penalised, and part of that penalty of ta- taxation for the surplus would be used to finance the investment. Uh, in in capital and infrastructure by the developing nations, so mm. uh, we because not having that world, and we're caught up uh, with with the immaturity of the the system the Americans forced upon us. We don't have that capability. So um, yeah, so it, you know, the MMT argument I think makes sense. It, it's it's a, it's a description of how money actually acts in the economy. You, you can you have to supplement by the role of credit which is left out of the argument at the moment. It doesn't have to be left out. And you've got to, I think, change the argument they have on foreign trade because I think that's simply simply wrong. Um, and have, everything should be explained in a monetary way. The, the exports are a cost, imports are a benefit. as a non-monetary injection into what is fundamentally a monetary theory. And I think it stuffs up that theory. All right, look, you, do you know what? If you listen to all of these podcasts, they all do piece together somehow. We have the answer to the world. 
uh, to the world economy. Uh, you just got to listen to all the episodes and join them together in the right places. And I think we did Not that. only about 250, aren't there? It's <laughs> something like that. It's going to take a while. That's right. Mm-hmm. Look, next time we're going to talk about the four-day working week. That's something that uh, the Shadow Chancellor, uh, Don McDonnell, was talking about a few weeks back at the uh, Labour Party conference in Brighton. Is that a good idea? We'll talk about that next time. Thanks, Steve. Okay. Right. Good. And we'll see you all for that one. Thanks for listening. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Back next week. 